Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth, remembering great ones is easy to do. What about the names who spent their whole lives? Walks down the footballs and catching sacrifice. They're guys, remember that guy. some guys now she's either twisted her ankle or or something worse she hurt herself on the first fault probably the last thing she should have done was vault again but she did and now she is in remember that guy the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present hey there folks i'm one of your hosts james let's see if my other host here can stick our landing i'm hoping to stick the landing and i want to say is that the Carrie Strug call? That is Carrie Strug. Well done. Well done. There we go. Okay, awesome. So I didn't pronounce it right. Olympic. I didn't pronounce it right. Strug, not Strug. Uh, but we do have a very special guest. It is the person who taped up that ankle to allow for the successful vault. Please introduce yourself. That's right. It's me. You know, noted uh, sports scientist and physio, the very special guest, Xavier. I just want to say real quick regarding Carrie Strug's last name. Far be it from us to mispronounce a last name on this show at any given point. We've never done that. We're unimpeachable. Never once. And if we ever would do that, that would indeed be a memorable instance. But I wonder if perhaps there's anyone else right now in the sporting world that's creating memorable instances for the two of you. You know, to put it in other words, perhaps making memories. Well, they're not making memories anymore. I need to address it, and I'm not really upset anymore because it's Thursday now, and on Tuesday, I did go to the, not funeral, the funeral comes a couple days after the death. The funeral is actually right now. Um, So welcome to the funeral for the 2023 Phillies. I've said it once, I'll say it a million times. The measure of success in baseball is how many wins do you get during the regular season, and once you get to the playoffs, it's truly just a roll of the dice. You know, a lot of people are saying the Phillies were a significantly better team than the Diamondbacks, and that might be true. But what we need to realize is that the difference between a 90-win team and an 84-win team is one game a month over the course of a season. That's all it is. So when we come down to a seven-game sample, anything can happen. Xavier knows all too well as a Yankees fan. You can dominate the run differential in a series. But if you lose more the games, fucking Pirates uh, series wasn't alive for another 40 years. And I'm still annoyed by that. Outscored them by 30 and lost. It just goes to show it, it is a very silly game. It's a beautiful game. It's a game we love. It's our national pastime. But at the end of the day, it's a game where the standings at the end of the season are determined by such large sample sizes. And it really just comes down to what could just be a bad week. Um, And it was a bad week for a lot of Phillies. In the last two games, $700 million in combined salary between Bryce Harper, Trey Turner, and Nick Castellanos goes 0 for 23. And it's the best of 11 series. Nick Castellanos became the second ever player in baseball history just last series to have back-to-back two home run games and then led this series off with a home run. Or if he didn't leave, like, in the first game. It was. And that's it was just his first, first at-bat. Fucking bonkers. That, like, the Nick Castellanos in particular just baffles me about that whiplash. Yeah, I mean, they fell apart at the worst time of the season. And 
when you when you look at the the two approaches to baseball, right? There's baseball go boom, and there's you know get the runner over small ball type of thing. Baseball go boom over 162 games is the better strategy. I don't think there's any debate. However, the more sustainable strategy, just like in basketball, you might not like the long two. But when it's a game seven and you need a bucket, God damn it, sometimes you got to take that long two. And sometimes you got to get the runner over. And sometimes you got to play small ball. And the D-backs did that. That's what winning baseball is when it comes down to it in a one-game scenario. They got the timely hits with runners in scoring position. I think we went one for 10 with runners in scoring position in game seven. Not great. Not great. But at the end of the day, I can't be a sore loser. Congratulations to the Diamondbacks. And I'm not going to watch a single game of the World Series. If I had a nickel for every time that an Arizona Diamondbacks team that made it to the World Series upset one of my friends deeply, I would have two <laughs> nickels. Uh, also, I mean, shout outs to the Arizona Diamondbacks for toppling the post 9-11 Yankees and now George Bush's Texas Rangers. That's real praxis, and I am proud of the comrade Diamondbacks, and I will support them for at least that reason, if nothing else. <laughs> I will not tread on that snake. Speaking of fans of teams that have been disappointed, after all, by past Diamondbacks World Series teams, Xavier, how you doing over there? I'm doing pretty good. There's a lot of little things that are making me happy, making memories. A lot of them are things that we've talked about in the past that deserve a bit of an update. First off, K.I. Klocksvik, the Faroese team, won their first ever group stage game and the first ever group stage European win for any Faroe team with a 3-0 win over Olympia Ljubljana of Slovenia. Fuck you, Slovenia. You're losing to the Faroe Islands. Let's go, Klaksvik. I've never hated Slovenia more passionately. Other than hating Slovenia. Another update. It's realignment time again. Army has officially joined the American, which means that Diaz and I will be going to Mikey Stadium at some point in the next year or two. Because it is the best place to watch a football game in all of America. And I'm very excited for that. I'm going to get so much army gear as if I don't already have a bunch of it. And I'll get, I'll get one of those stupid soccer scarves that are half and half. And I'll have half army and half temple on it. It'll be the weirdest thing ever. And I'm going to make it and then be the only person in the world with one of them. There's something in here about Army invading the American Conference and uh, America getting a taste of its own medicine. I don't know what the joke is, but that joke exists somewhere in there. And if we were smarter and funnier, we would dig for it. The American Conference with the black and gold Army logo looks really good, actually. Like, I, I think they should just change it to black and gold. The other thing that I love about this edition is they clearly laid out the protocol for Army-Navy game now, with both being football participants in the American Conference. We have the possibility to get the Army-Navy game the week after Army and Navy play in the conference championship game. Ooh, back-to-back Army-Navy. There is the An chance. extended armed conflict. Well, and the first one, because like obviously the, the Army-Navy game is played in Philadelphia, but I think because Not right of the American... Predominantly. Uh, members of this show are also in the only other city that hosts it as much as Philadelphia does. It's in Foxborough this year. And now Foxborough, yeah. having a Gillette Stadium. Right, no, totally fair. But we could get, because I believe the American Conference rule is still that the better team is the host. 
So we could get an Army Navy game where one team actually has home field advantage, which we haven't had. I don't know when the last time would have been. This is why we have Wikipedia. Let's find out. Oh, you know, we it looks like they had the Army Navy game at Mikey Stadium during COVID year. So yeah, so in twenty twenty, because of COVID, they played it at West Point. And in forty three and forty two, they were both played at the home site of either team. But that's during World War II. So if we want to go back to a non-wartime, non-world-stopping pandemic game in which one of them had home field, it would have been 1893. That's a long time. So hopefully no more pandemics, hopefully no World War III. (laughs) As long as we avoid both of those, it would be historic to finally see that Army-Navy game play with home field. But other than that, also have to shout out the fact that the NHL does suck and did backtrack once they had even a little bit of pressure. Shout out to Travis Dermott for saying, hey, fuck you, I'm going to wear pride tape on my stick anyway because I want to. And it took one person for the NHL to then say, actually, you can put whatever you want on your stick. It's fine. We, we apologize. Well, and like shout out to Travis Dermott in particular because Travis Dermott isn't nobody, but Travis Dermott is a player who like, if this was an issue that the NHL was going to push back on more could have consequences that like truly affected his career. He is not of a stature that is immune to, you know, blackballing or something like that. If teams pursued that angle. And so there was more of a risk for him to take this on than a lot of other players. So just that credit to Travis Dermott and previous guy of the day, Anson Carter Canucks legend, like two days after I posted him as guy of the day became the first broadcaster to be wearing blatantly rainbow stuff during this whole thing. And apparently Travis Dermott has been doing this since he was in the AHL. Like there's a picture of a Canucks tweet from back in March of 2022, where he just has multiple sticks that has pride tape on him. Just the thing that he does. So shout out to Travis Dermott. That was great. Last two things about soccer. One, had some fun Champions League games, except for Diaz. I'm sorry about Newcastle hitting the bar multiple times, but I hope you had a good time at Fado at least. It was significantly less drunk time than PSG, and also less enjoyable. Yeah, it's just frustrating, man. We deserved a point, and if we'd gotten the point, we would be very, very well on our way to advancing. And now we're very, very much in the thick of it. It's ugh, very frustrating. I still believe it's a game in you. Of the only uh, thing I don't like is is when people say, oh, they were unlucky. We weren't unlucky. We hit balls that didn't go into the goal. Therefore, we got the result that we deserve. If I am going to push forward my XG model, I must also adhere by its results, which do say Dortmund deserved the 1-0 victory. Yeah. And back on this side of the world, the Red Bulls did increase their playoff streak to 14, thanks to... In the last minute of stoppage time on decision day, after the other games had finished, the Red Bulls get a penalty kick and up steps 21-year-old John Tolkien, the homegrown left back, cool as you like, slots it in the corner, Red Bulls make the playing game. And because the playing game was on Wednesday and we were recording on Thursday, I got to watch them last night beat the shit out of Charlotte 5-2 with Tolkien having two more assists to set the Red Bulls' homegrown record for assists in a season with 10, beating Tyler Adams, the current captain of the U.S. men's national team. And he also had a ridiculous free kick goal. And Elias Manuel, 
who had scored three goals all season long, got the Red Bulls' first ever playoff hat trick. Now they get to just go to the full playoffs proper where because MLS has changed their rules for this season, it's a best of three against Cincinnati. I don't know why it's not just a home and home, but it's a best of three with first game in Cincy, second game in Harrison, third game in Cincy. So we'll see what happens with that. Who knows? Maybe John Tolkien will carry us to our first ever MLS Cup as the last seed into the playoffs. New York's always so dramatic. Doesn't matter what sport it is. Just gotta be prima donnas. Need it, especially with a guy with bleach blonde hair. Well, especially because NYCFC had a pretty rough year. So the Red Bulls really had to hold it down for the whole metro area. Fuck those guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's saying something when it's like, hey, the team that's owned by the massive Red Bull conglomerate is not even the worst ownership morally of the two New York area soccer teams. It's actually like oil money, state ownership of NYCFC, co-owned with the Yankees. It's like, could you get two groups more hated to co-own a team? This is me just constantly ignoring the New England quarterback that owns a significant stake of the Las Vegas Aces. I'm so glad he wasn't at any of the parade. Oof, bullet dodged. They probably said like, hey, Tom, the vibes are pretty great. Hey, yeah, like, and, don't come spoil those. We'll, Enjoy from afar. We'll set up a live stream for you. Yeah. Uh, fucked. Anyway, with the end of the WNBA season, you know what that means. It's the start of the NBA season. It's baby. the start of the NBA season, baby. <laughs> So excited for this season because I get to watch my large French adult son, the alien Victor Wembanyama, who had a completely identical stat line to Tim Duncan in his rookie debut, because of course he did. Just fucking bonkers. It was an exciting debut for him. However, I am interested in a, we'll say, sophomore participant of the NBA. Participant, not player, because I want to talk about Shea Flores. I imagine the two of you have seen the news about Shea Flores. Kate Scott posted a nice tribute to her, uh, to them. I have not, so I'm excited to learn. Well, Diaz has given me an excellent lead in. (laughs) Shea Flores is a referee in the NBA. It's their second year. And as you may be noticing by the pronouns that I'm using for them, Shea Flores is last Sunday, uh, which would have been October 22nd. There's a GQ profile published in which Shea Flores came out as non-binary. And so they are the first non-binary official in major North American professional sports leagues. And as a leading expert on non-binary individuals enjoying basketball, I thought that I should (laughs) uh, take a moment to weigh in on (laughs) just got insulted by my wife for saying that. (laughs) Um, I I did think that I should take a second to do it because it's cool. So they're a Highland Park native. They came up playing hoops. Played with a WNBA player, Jacqueline Johnson, who only appeared for like two seasons in the turn of the 2000s. LA Times got a hold of their high school coach and talked to them for a little bit. But this is not, you know, for anyone that wants to say diversity high or anything. No, no, no. There's a substantial resume here. They've been in the G League for a total of nine seasons altogether on their resume. They were at the G League finals for several of those years. Did a lot of NCAA refing. They have been to the final four multiple times for the NCAA women's tournament, as well as in 2021, the NCAA women's title, uh, which I believe would be the South Carolina year or one of the South Carolina years. 
I probably should have checked this. <laughs> We're looking it up. I think that's Aaliyah Boston missed twice at the rim year. Stanford, right? That is Stanford over Arizona. You are correct. Stanford over in the, Arizona. Because in the semifinal, yep, that was when yep, Aaliyah Boston had two right at the rim. over that. Hey, you know what? That's okay. These things happen. Arizona, in their semifinal game, had 69 points. Nice. Very nice. Um, anyway, on that court, we also had Che Flores. Been in the W for 10 years and been in the WNBA finals as an official and was in the NBA last year for about 35 games altogether, but uh, they'll be full-time in the NBA this year, serving from opening tip-off. And, and, you know, Mike Johnson also got made Speaker of the House today, if not yesterday. Time is meaningless now. Uh, the hellscape that we fuck that in. Guy. Yeah, fuck that guy. There's, there's a shitty religious fundamentalist that just got installed as Speaker of the House and there is a cadre of fascist individuals that are slowly building like a death cult that's going to take all of us down with them. And one of the things that they're fueling that with is just hatred of transgender individuals, particularly in the world of sports, because they figured out it's the one wedge issue where they can stick their fucking foot in the door to keep it from closing and then wedge it open with their many legally purchased guns that they want to use to murder us all. So uh, that all sucks shit. And we've talked several times throughout this year about some of the things and last year actually it's been two years of just terrible things related to trans individuals in sports and between for one uh if you haven't been listening to pablo torre's new show did a really awesome piece with the literal only high school trans female athlete who plays softball as like a backup catcher and, and like admittedly just terrible at softball and just likes playing it because sports a beautiful thing that can unite us and between that and now between some good news as we enter this league with Che Flores, and of course, I mean, all of the gay women that just won another WNBA title, but every WNBA title comes with that. It's just part of the territory, and we love that. Che Flores, they will be bringing some of that energy, hopefully, to the NBA this year. Very excited for them. They said, like, coming into this, one, they feel so much more comfortable existing now, having said this in the public sphere, and two, they recognize that being in the public sphere there is some level of obligation that they want to feel to show other queer kids growing up that there is a place for them. Uh, and I'm excited about that. And there should always be a place for that sports. I can guarantee you, you will always find a place for that here. Remember that guy. So uh, enough of that. Let's talk about the guys that we've brought today. I'm going to take it away this week as I begin our category. Something that I think comes up with guys very often is the idea of seizing opportunities. Guide them is not going to be there for you all the time. You got to grasp it when you can. And the phrase that kind of rattled around in my head as I thought about the guy that really kind of inspired me to talk about seizing opportunities was making lemonade out of lemons. Now, one thing I do want to disclaim before we begin is several times while the three of us were talking about this episode, I typed that backwards and I said making lemons out of lemonade. And so it was understood by all three of us that we were talking about people that were getting opportunities some of us, because of my mistake, I want to take full fault for this. <laughs> some of us may have uh, gone with the category in almost an opposite way, but we're going to try and consider them all equally. But I am going to talk about people that did make the most of the opportunities, that did not squander them, and that did over and over have those opportunities in particular presented when other people suffered negative consequences or negative circumstances. Very often, others will have a, a dark moment and this guy will swoop in to take advantage of it. Maybe not maliciously, but God, does it happen a lot. And we're going to discuss one of my favorite names of a guy. And it's not because it's like a crazy wild one. It just flows so well. But before we start with his name, 
We want to start with his dad's name, Donatello. Donatello grows up in post-war Italy, and he and his family eventually, because post-war Italy is kind of a shithole, move to Venezuela. Growing up now in Venezuela, meets this beautiful girl from Spain, Nalida Hernandez, and they start a family. Already, I think we're seeing, you know, an instance of something beautiful coming from some adverse circumstances. I think that's appropriate because that's what this guy is going to do now as Donatello and Nalita welcome a number of sons. But in particular, they welcome the one that we are going to talk about today, Marcos, whose last name is Scudero. Marcos Scudero is not named Marcos Scudero. This is something I want to begin with. His name is Marcos Scudero. That's what he's born with on October 30th, 1975. I I tried very hard to figure out like the point of delineation where he was no longer Marcos and became Marco. I have to assume that at some point, In his time in professional baseball, a white person got his name, heard the S's at the end of one word and beginning of the other, and just assumed that it was one S and just spelled it without one. And he had to kind of go with that forever. So we know in our hearts that his name is Marcos, but we'll go ahead and refer to him for convenience sake as Marcos Cudro, who was born in San Felipe, Venezuela. Growing up, he's got an older brother, Piero, and he kind of tags along by the age of six with Piero when Piero is going to Little League games. This is where Marco himself starts to pick up the sport of baseball. It's the late 80s, the early 90s, and San Felipe is not far from Caracas in Venezuela. And that is why everyone in this area is just a fucking huge Omar Vizquel fan. He is like the the sun and stars to everyone in Venezuela at this point. He is kind of carrying the banner of Venezuelan baseball in a way that later on Miguel Cabrera will pick up. Initially, you know, both of these Scudero brothers, they are aspiring to be like Omar. And Piero looks like he's going to get a chance. He's this big lefty first baseman. He's getting into all of these opportunities while he's still young and has this sweet swing. And it kind of brings Marco along in the riptide. But then when Marco's 16, he gets a tryout with the Rockies. And even though they don't sign him, something in his mentality changes. And he starts to recognize that he is getting chances by being brought around with Piero. And that while Piero's starting to kind of tail off and like plateau and not develop any further here in their adolescence, Marco thinks he's got a lot of potential left. And so he starts to really like bust his ass. And in the midst of Omar Vizquel's first season in Cleveland, Marco Scudero is able to sign a international free agent contract with the organization of his hero and also join the Cleveland, I'm going to say and just bleep it out, the Cleveland organization. This is a dream come true. In spring training, he even gets to meet Omar Vizquel. And that is great because his time in the Cleveland minor leagues from that point forward is very, very difficult. It starts actually on his 18th birthday. Gets a call from his family while he's, you know, off in the International Academy. And his mother has passed away due to brain cancer, sadly. This is at the age of 49. Not out of nowhere, but still very sudden. So that's a brutal start. There is the language barrier, naturally, as he's trying to integrate into this more English-speaking society. And he does find a great partner, Ross Atkins, in the organization. They kind of trade language lessons back and forth, which is great for Ross Atkins, who will eventually become the president of Latin American operations for Cleveland, thanks to this training from Marco. And then he just kind of gets up to this AAA level and... They're, they're not necessarily feeling it. It's been six years. And so he is involved in this big trade with Milwaukee, essentially for Richie Sexton. Richie Sexton's coming to Cleveland and he's part of a package going to Milwaukee. He is, however, not part of this trade initially. He is the player to be named later. 
Later on, they decide, okay, actually, yeah, we'll, we'll take that now 24-year-old that you've got who's just been languishing in your minors. We'll see what we can do with him. He's in the Brewers org now. And while I do not like saying Cleveland, I do have to mention it's kind of funny that now with Milwaukee, he gets sent to their AAA team, the Indianapolis. In 2001, now his fourth season in AAA, there is a documentary crew following around Indianapolis. They pick four journeymen to kind of focus on, and they all are covered different quad A archetypes. You've got a former first round pick who just hasn't been able to put it together in Kyle Peterson. You've got a former prospect who just like went on an NPB stint and now is trying to get back into the American leagues, Micah Franklin. You've got a 32 year old who has just lived in the minors his whole adult life and Brad Tyler. And then you've got this guy, Marcus Kudrow, you know, the international free agent who people see potential, but they just don't know necessarily how to crack that egg. This document is going to get released many years later in 2005, but it will be titled Player to be Named Later. The thing that comes through when you watch this is very easy to find online. With Scudero, there is just a sheer determination to make it. Like, it seems really obvious to say, but he is so fucking dedicated into breaking into the big leagues, in part because he does have a family at this point. Back in Venezuela, there had been a neighborhood girl, Marines. She's very interested. They live like three houses down the street. I think she's cute. She tries to ask him out to a dance, a party. It's like, no, I got baseball practice. And this keeps up for a while until he finally kind of realizes, oh, oh, wait, okay, okay. Uh, and they have been together, you know, ever since. And so he's desperate to make it to the majors to do this for his family. He's not going to get a chance to do it in Milwaukee because the next year he is waived at the start of the season for Nelson Figaro. But from the East, a lifeline is offered. He seizes it as he is claimed by the New York Metropolitans. I mean, I get beggars can't be choosers, but the Mets, really? It doesn't make you feel better that he doesn't start with the Mets. He actually starts with the Norfolk Tides. Uh, I forgot that this is when the Norfolk Tides were the AAA for New York. I think this is when the Orioles AAA was the Ottawa Lynx in Canada, because I know it was that for one of like the mid-2000s baseball games. But Norfolk's there, and he's fucking killing it in Norfolk, slashing 319, 375, 475 in 97 games. He's an International League All-Star. And finally, on July 19th, 2002, gets his big break getting called up to the Mets because an injury had been suffered by Joe McEwing. So let's go ahead. I want to keep a tally of the number of times Marco Scudero gets playtime due to someone else's misfortune. This is number one with Ross McEwing. He's called up to the Mets while they're in Cincinnati. Not a great start because he gets the team hotel. Everyone else checks in under fake names. And he like can speak English. Not well still necessarily. And he doesn't know how to find like the only other Venezuelan on the team. Edgardo Alfonso. But there in the restaurant, he sees Bobby Valentine. He's the manager for him at the time. He goes up to Bobby Valentine. He's like, hey, Mr. Valentine. Valentine's like, oh, hey, how you doing, man? What's your name? He's like, uh, Marco Scudero. Oh, cool. You, you're from Cincinnati? You're just going to school here or something? Uh, coach, I'm, I'm the player that got called up today. And Bobby Valentine's, you know, very like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. But he is an afterthought to this organization. He is solid for the Mets for two years, 75 games altogether. What he can do for them is play at second, third, short, and left field and have a bleh bat. Like he's a late inning defensive replacement, but he can do it at a lot of different spots. The Mets missed the playoffs both years. They're not going anywhere. And so 2003, he is once again put on waivers. His bat's not good. Like, just frankly, his bat is not good. But his positional flexibility, now that is an asset. 
And in the West, there's a team that has an organizational philosophy about that. Also have an organizational philosophy that notices that in the minor leagues, something that Marco has done very, very well consistently is get on base. And so not Jonah Hill, but Paul DePodesta reaches out and he says, we need this guy because he gets on base. And so he comes to the Oakland Athletics for the 2004 season. There's a question of where he's going to fit. There's not an obvious spot for him until in spring training. Mark Ellis suffers an injury colliding with shortstop Bobby Crosby, and he just destroys the labrum in his right shoulder. And so now, after having season-ending surgery, tally number two, Marco Scudero's got somewhere he can play all year. He is pretty much their starter at second. He does still play a little bit at a couple spots, including right field. Gets an obvious career high in games and also every other counting statistic because he's just playing more than ever. Average, RBI, runs, hits, doubles, career highs. While Ellis is going to return the next year, Scudero has now like set himself up as the team's utility man. So he's going to continue to stick around for the next three years. 2004, 91, and 71 is seven games short of Boston for a playoff spot. In 2005, 84 and 78 is short of a playoff spot. But in 2006, the Moneyball A's have the best playoff run of their early era. And Scudero is thoroughly in the thick of it. In the ALDS, they are facing the Twins, the Metrodome. Frank Thomas is the Oakland legend that leads this game off. And then Scudero comes up with two outs in this first game and ropes an RBI double to make it 2-0. There is a second Frank Thomas dinger later. A's win that game 3-2. Game two, top of the fifth. Scudero comes up against Boof Bonzer for the Minnesota Twins. Nick Swisher on base. Forgot that he was there with the Oakland Athletics. His second RBI double of the series does draw first blood an eventual 5-2 win for Oakland. And now game three, with a chance to close it out in front of the home crowd. Bottom of the second, he is facing Brad Radke with two outs. He has his third RBI double of the series, his second with two outs. It is now 2-0 Oakland. The Twins battle back. It's 4-2 in the bottom of the seventh. And Minnesota almost escapes a two-out, two-walk jam before they have an air with third walk following it that loads the bases for Marco Scudero, who, with two outs, launches his fourth RBI double in three games of the ALDS, his third with two outs, clearing the bases, Putting up the A's 8-2. It's the nail in the coffin. Justin Morneau hits a garbage time moonshot, but it's 8-3, and the A's advance onto the ALCS, where they do fall to Detroit. And Scudero is like largely a non-factor. But nonetheless, this was a guy who only broke into the majors because of an injury, only got to stick around with the A's this long for an injury. And as much as any Oakland player has since Ricky Henderson in that 90s playoff series against the Blue Jays, did everything at the plate to win the series for the team. Oakland starts a downslide after this. Scooter also starts a downslide. And so he hits arbitration and Oakland being the penny-pinching franchise they are, they decide they're going to trade him from minor leaguers to the Blue Jays. As we have heard before, always seems to be that wherever Scudero goes, there's going to be questions about where he's going to find play time. And then we get this here with Toronto. Tally number three, our very favorite Phillies, Cardinals, and also Blue Jay, Scott Rowland, injures a finger early on, so Marco Scudero can play at third base for a while. Okay, that works. But what happens when Scott Rowland comes back? Well, David Eckstein hurts his hip. And so now Scudero gets to fill in for David Eckstein, sure. But David Eckstein does eventually come back. 
And almost immediately after David Eckstein comes back, he collides with second baseman Aaron Hill, giving him a concussion. And so now Scudero fills in at second base for pretty much the rest of the season. So we are now up to five all-time opportunities for Marcus Scudero to fill in because of someone else's injury, including three in this one season with the Toronto Blue Jays. And in 2009, they just give him the starting shortstop to start. Between these two years with the Blue Jays, 2008 and 2009, he puts up 9.9 war overall in B-War. That is second on the team in those two years to Roy Halladay. He's the best player on the Blue Jays for two years, and he gets to do it because three different infielders just have the stupidest possible injuries. It makes a lot of sense why Roy Halladay wanted to leave to go to the Phillies. Marco <laughs> Scudero. Like, I love Marco Scudero, but we got to get Halladay a little sure. more help than Marco Scudero. I would be interested to see what would have happened if Roy Halladay had stuck around just a little bit longer for like the Joey Bats experience to happen. Not that I don't deeply hate Jose Bautista, but man, if they'd had Roy Halladay, that team would have had to make it to a World Series at least. You would have gotten at least one vintage Halladay, like seven shutout to push them in a major ALCS victory. Something else that Marco Scudero does, by the way, here after the 2009 season with the Blue Jays is he plays in his second World Baseball Classic. Uh, I wanted to focus on this one because it's a little bit more fun for the team he chooses to represent Venezuela, though he gets a choice because he could have also gone to Team Italy thanks to his dad's heritage if he'd wanted to, but he decides to go to Venezuela and Venezuela does make it to the third place championship in the 2009 World Baseball Classic. They do not win the third place championship, but they do make it there. So he is now a free agent. Toronto's not going to re-sign him. Who is going to re-sign him is Boston. Two years, $11 million. This is like double his career earnings. This is finally the vindication for all of that dedication that he showed in player to be named later to get to that paycheck that will change his family's life forever. This is generational wealth for the Scudero family. A couple of fun things happen in Boston. He's there to play like every day. So he doesn't have any fun injury replacements. In 2010, he does record the first ever out in target field history when he gets caught stealing in the top of the first for their home opener that day. And like, he's fine for the Sox. He's back down to like what you would probably expect from him with that two and a half war. Everyday player, but certainly not the all-star that he was playing like in Toronto. During this whole time between 2010 and 2011, misses the playoffs in 2011, misses the playoffs in spectacular fashion, thanks to Hall of Guy inductees like Nolan Reimold. But what is interesting about his time in Boston is he knows he's about to get replaced. He knows that Jose Iglesias is coming up the ranks. He's the big like Red Sox middle infield prospect at this time. And he's playing with him, of course, during spring training and stuff. And so it's interesting to see Marco Scudero, someone who knows that it is very much just the circumstances you end up with very often that are going to determine your career being a very gracious mentor to Jose Iglesias. Like really he takes the kid in and shows him a lot of the ropes and really tries to make sure that he is well set up for success after Scudero moves on, which he eventually does. When he gets to the end of it, he's going to exercise the mutual option for Boston so that Boston can trade him and get something instead of just him walking in free agency. So they do trade him to... I'm curious, if I say the most pointless franchise in baseball, I think I know what you guys will say. I think it'll be the same thing as me, but I'm curious. What do you think the most pointless franchise in baseball is? The most pointless franchise? Pointless. Meaningless. You you hate the Royals, but that would then mean that they have a point. Yeah, yeah. Colorado Rockies. There we go. 
there we go. That's it. It's the Colorado Rockies. He does get traded to the Colorado Rockies. I tried to think of the most inoffensive team that I can think about. Yeah, I think what's what's the team that no one who doesn't root for them has any feelings about? He has some time with the Rockies. It doesn't matter. Just like pretty much everything with the Rockies except for Todd Helton and Larry Walker. But halfway through the year, July 27th, he is traded from the Rockies to San Francisco. And now he is on the 2012 Giants. And we know how that's going to end up, but let's talk about how they get there and how Marco Scudero contributes. In 95 games that season with Colorado, he had put up 0.1 war and a 72 OPS plus, basically as bad as he was as a replacement level player with the Mets in his rookie year. In 61 games with San Francisco, 2.1 war in 30 fewer games with an OPS of 144, which would be by far his single best season at the plate. He absolutely fucking lights it up for the Giants, is just putting an exclamation point on the San Francisco lineup. They win the NL West. They beat the Joey Votto Reds 3-2 in the NLDS, and they set up an NLCS between the two most recent World Series winners at the time, the San Francisco Giants and the St. Louis Cardinals. I am sorry, Diaz, that I'm talking about, like, not just shitty franchises, but particular iterations of them that did do you dirty. Phillies were such the better team. But again. Yeah. Mm-mm-mm. So, Marco Scudero's second ever postseason trip. He has been waiting to make up for lost time. In game one, they do fall to the St. Louis Cardinals. He does have a leadoff single in the fourth that like really sparks the only big inning that they have in the whole game, but it's not enough. So St. Louis goes up one nothing. In game two, he is involved in a questionable uh, slide at second base with Jackson Holiday's dad, Matt Holiday, And with bases loaded in bottom of the fourth, he knocks a three RBI single through Jackson Holiday's dad's legs. That does lead the Giants to win 7-1 in the series. But then they drop 3-4. and four, And they fall in a 3-1 hole. This is before we get to the 2016 seasons where 3-1 is basically the least safe series lead you can possibly have. We've got all the momentum in St. Louis's favor as we head to Game 5. Lance Lynn was starting for St. Louis back here in 2012. And Lance Lynn does not have a particularly good game. He bounces a throw really early on that allows Marco Scudero to score the first run off of him in an eventual 4-0 win. It's now a 3-2 series. Game six, in the bottom of the first, he is again the first run scored by the Giants. And in the second, he has another huge playoff double, which is in the midst of a massive rally to put San Francisco up 5-0. They will eventually win 6-1. They have evened the series. And in game seven, tell me if you've heard this before, top one, he's in the middle of the rally that scores the first run. And eventually in the second, he sparks yet another rally, a five-run third that is going to just absolutely demolish them. Eventually, closer Sergio Romo is on the mound and Jackson Holiday's dad hits a can of corn up in the air, fielded by Scudero to win the series. He goes 14 for 28 in this. He ties the record for most hits ever in an LCS and he does win an LCS MVP. And again, only his fourth ever playoff series he gets a iconic moment it's it's a picture of him from the end of that nlcs where he's kind of putting his hands up as the rain falls over him they win the world series he gets his ring and it is just this cap to a journeyman career it's insane how similar it is to aubrey huff so i'm very thankful that it didn't kind of sour the way that one did 
let's go ahead and wrap up the career for him real quick. In the offseason, he does go to a third World Baseball Classic with Venezuela. They lose very early on in the knockouts. And in 2013, with the Giants, he does have a shiny new three-year, $20 million contract. An incredible first half that he puts up in response to that contract. It is one that gets him his only ever All-Star appearance in 2013. Love not only an only All-Star appearance, but an All-Star appearance after he's already won NLCS MVP and a World Series ring. But the end of 2013, he starts to get hurt. And for all of 2014, basically, he's battling injuries. And so finally... Really, once again, citing the thing that he has said from early on all the way back in the minors, the importance of not just at this point providing for his family, but being there for his family and being able to live a high quality life with his family going forward. He does decide to hang up the cleats and he retires, but I'm just astounded by the tenacity, really, of Marco Scooter. I think that's what stands out more than anything because... Stay ready and you don't have to get ready. The fact that he was able to so many times in his career have the mental fortitude to be prepared enough, to be well-trained enough, to be versatile enough, that whatever kind of lemon happened to roll towards his feet, he was going to get that. He was going to stick that sucker on a juicer, add just a little bit of sugar, and offer you an ice-cold tall glass of lemonade. That is my guy today, Marcos. Marco Scudero. The one thing, though, he never had the fortitude to tell everyone that they were saying his name wrong. And I will say he, he definitely had opportunities. There was a guy in the Red Bulls who's now on Nashville whose name is Alex Mule. In the, his first season, everyone called him Alex Mule, and the announcers all called him Mule because they got it wrong the first time. He was too nervous as a rookie to tell anyone. Until his grandma said, that is not your name. Do not let them call you that. You're disrespecting our family by not having them correct themselves. So from the next season on, and it was Alex Mawil. I bet if people were getting the last name wrong, that he would have fought for it more. Because again, he's the guy that clearly does care about family. I think that if it was the family name, it would have been more of an issue. Just like George Niang. Maybe it was like that. Yeah, I mean, none of us are saying George. If he asks us to, we will. But Marco didn't ask anyone. So just, you know, a people pleaser and a true guy, but not the only guy that we have today. And I'm very curious to hear about some of the other ones and the opportunities that they have seized upon, or perhaps not. Well, my guy also had some big opportunities pop up throughout his career. One of the hardest things I think in sports and in life is to swallow your pride and do the right thing. Sometimes you get your opportunity, you seize it, and the respect still doesn't come. It takes a lot to be able to still proceed forward in light of that. In the case of the guy that I want to discuss, he would set multiple NFL records in his first full season as a starter. He would lead the team to a 6-2 and two record in his first eight games of the second season that he was a starter, and he would still be traded away the following offseason. Season in the new home goes very poorly. He actually considers retirement at this point because he gets released. But instead, he swallows his pride and he commits to being the best backup that he can possibly be. And from these lemons, the multiple backup roles that he held, he would rise to become the lemonade toast of the place where it all started. I need to talk about one of only two men who is immortalized with a statue outside of Xfinity Live in Philadelphia, 
I need to talk about, especially this week as the Phillies lose, Nick Foles. I've been waiting for this. He's one of the most popular people in the history of Philadelphia. And I think I'm not going to allow you to dispute the guy's status of Nick Foles. Is he perhaps the most famous guy of all time? Sure. But I'm fully here for this. This 100% is is a discussion. All right. I'll defer for now. But I will say, in the city that two of the three of us live in, he is possibly one of the most recognizable or one of the top five most recognizable people that you could see walking down the street. You might be right, Xavier, but we are not a Philadelphia podcast. We are an international podcast. We have listeners all across the world, and therefore we must lend an international perspective. Yo, real quick, shout out to our boy Leon, who is uh, one of our UK listeners, who then also, after I like joshed him the other day about the dot on our map being his downloads in the UK, it's like, oh, well, wait, real quick check greece now so i checked i was like oh yeah there's a download in greece it's like yeah i'm in greece right now fuck yeah leon you rule (laughs) thank you leon and yes we will try to see nick Foles through the lens of leon and through our international audience there's a lot of guy elements to his story if we're to think of what are the two maybe most archetypal guys there is the player to be named later and there is the backup quarterback two fantastic archetypes of guys So with that being the base upon which I shall build my case, Nick Foles, born January 20th, 1989 in Austin, Texas. He attended Westlake High School, where in two years as a starter, he threw for 5,658 yards and 58 touchdowns, which shattered all of the school records, which had been set. There was a pretty good quarterback that came through a few years before him, Drew Brees. So he broke all of Drew Brees' high school records. Wasn't only in good company in the record book, he also had some NFL quality playing alongside him while he was at Westlake. He had a good connection with Kyle Adams. That was a tight end, went to play on for the Bears and Buccaneers. And anytime Nick Foles led his team to the end zone, you knew it wasn't just six, it was seven, because Ravens legend and future Hall of Famer Justin Tucker was coming on to kick the extra points. So quite a high school team there. And... It would be easy to think Nick Foles, quarterback purist, growing up in Texas, absolutely. Nick Foles was also a hell of a basketball player. He was twice named the team MVP for his high school team, and he was recruited by Texas, Baylor, and Georgetown, among other schools, for basketball. In spite of all that, though, he would commit to Michigan State to sign on and be a quarterback. His freshman year, he only saw action in one game against Alabama-Birmingham, And he was very firmly third on the depth chart. And, I mean, how couldn't he be? You have returning starter Brian Hoyer at the helm. You have fellow freshman Kirk Cousins ahead of him on the depth chart. It's pretty tough for him to see a path forward to actually playing. So he's going to transfer to Arizona instead. And he's going to redshirt for his 2008 season. In 2009, the starting job is open. He's competing with Matt Scott. And unfortunately, doesn't win the competition. Transfers in to get the chance to start, and he loses. So this is the first instance in which Nick Foles is being presented with those lemons. Still going to be a good teammate, though. First couple weeks, Matt Scott looking a little shaky. And by the time it is the time for the Wildcats to go up to Corvallis, play against Oregon State, pay a visit to Mitch Canham and our boys up there, even though Mitch Cannon was a baseball coach and this is the football team. 
Just had to shoehorn Mitch, it in. Mitch Canham appreciates all sports. No, Mitch Canham observing from the sidelines and watching in awe of Nick Foles as in his first start for Arizona, first for three touchdowns, runs in one more, and he secures not only the win, he secures the starting spot. Across his three years at Arizona, he throws for over 10,000 yards with 67 touchdowns to 33 interceptions. The other thing that I found very interesting looking at his college stats, he ran for negative 299 yards because by collegiate rules, sacks count against your rushing total. Oh, And he's not much of a rushing quarterback. So he does have less than 10,000 yards as a result of those sacks. And just seeing, yeah, seeing negative 299 yards rushing was just enough to jump off the page. I was like, wait a second. I need to check on that real quick. So that that's how that uh, statistical discrepancy happens. But it's enough to put him on some NFL radars. He runs exactly a 4.9940 at the combine. So he's just under that threshold. He's not slow. He's now sneaky athletic. It's a very important <laughs> distinction. Of course. Of course he is. It's enough to get him taken 84th overall in the third round of the 2012 draft by the Philadelphia Eagles. This is the second time Andy Reid has taken a quarterback to be the backup with a firmly entrenched starter. The first time being Kevin Cobb with Donovan McNabb in the 07 draft. Now we flash forward. Michael Vick is entering his third season as the starter for the Eagles. Very clearly Nick Foles is the backup in this situation. But Andy Reid, quarterback guru, can never hurt to get another arm in the building. Vic struggles early in the season, and it leads for a lot of calls for Nick Foles to go in. For a couple of reasons. First of all, there's nobody more popular in Philadelphia than the backup quarterback. We love a backup quarterback. It is very off-brand for us to be as united behind Jalen Hurts as we are. It is also, I mean, an unfortunate fact about Philadelphia that in particular, you do love a white backup when the entrenched starter is a black quarterback. This is perhaps a fair point, but I would also (laughs) say... That there is no team in the history of the NFL with a more Absolutely. beautiful lineage of black quarterbacks. There's been the so many Eagles. opportunities for Philly to feel that way. Absolutely. Because <laughs> you go Randall Cunningham, you go Rodney mm-hmm. Pete, obviously McNabb, Vic, now Hurts. So it is unimpeachable. It's it, it's it's a good run. And that's that's a point well taken. But also Nick Foles looked fucking great in the preseason. All the talk on WIP through August, you know, this Nick Foles guy. Because, again, similar with Marco Scudero, there's nothing that a WIP caller loves getting wrong more than whether or not a player's name is plural or not. Alshon Jeffries is one of the best receivers in Eagles history. <laughs> Jordan Matthew, they love doing legend. it. Ravens legend, Jordan Matthews, exactly. So these calls are coming in, but it's not until Vic suffers a concussion that Foles finally gets his chance to go in. His first start is against Washington. It's not great. It's a 31 to 6 loss, but nonetheless, Reed would commit to making Foles a starter for the rest of the season. It was a very down year for the Eagles. They were like three and seven at this point. So it's like, we're not going to go on a playoff run anyway. You might as well let Vic really recover from this concussion and let's see what we got. The following week, in a road game at Tampa Bay, the Eagles were down. 21 to 9 late in the game, but Nick Foles leads two touchdown drives, including throwing a game winning one yard touchdown pass to Jeremy Macklin on the final play of the game. Also a former Ravens legend. We love Eagles cast offs, baby. Nelson Aguilar, Ravens legend. 
Deshaun Jackson, Ravens legend. <laughs> or no, we Dalton. could do this all day, man. You guys got Torrey Smith and Timmy Jernigan. We did. Yeah, Torrey Smith, big uh, part of that Super Bowl run, as we'll get into in a little bit. Eagles win that game. It turns out that it is the last win of the Andy Reid era for the Philadelphia Eagles because the Eagles lose out. Nick Foles gets hurt himself in the second to last game of the season. Michael Vick came back in for the most dead man walking game I've ever seen in the history of football. The Eagles got pummeled by the Giants and everybody knew it was Andy Reid's last game. Uh, It was really rough. With that being the case, Reid out, Chip Kelly in from Oregon, and it is an open competition in August between Mike Vick and Nick Foles. But doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure, hey, the guy that ran that kind of read option, fast-paced offense with Marcus Mariota, maybe he wants the running quarterback and not the guy that runs a 4-9-9-40. So Mike Vick does win out and get the job. That week one game, I just need to say briefly, I've obviously had football games that I loved watching more, that I was happier to watch. I've never been more excited watching a football game than that first Chip Kelly Monday night football game with Mike Vick at the helm. It was a track meet. I've never seen anything like it. Eventually, the NFL figured him out. But that first game, oh, my God. But Mike Vick was in. And we don't care about that game. We care about Nick Foles. So when it's week five, Vick hurts his hamstring. And Foles comes in, goes 16 of 25 for 197 yards, two scores, leads the Eagles to a win over the Giants. The next week, Vic still hurts, so he gets to start against Dallas. And we see the first example of why Nick Foles is what has been referred to as a high-variance quarterback. When he's going good, he's really, really good. When he's going bad, he's really, really bad. Against Dallas with first place in the division on the line, he goes 11 of 29 for 80 yards and no scores, and then he gets knocked out with a concussion of his own. Misses the next two weeks. Eagles are kind of struggling. There was a Matt Barkley game in there that was just horrific. I actually went to that game. The Eagles lost 15-7, to and their only touchdown was on a punt snap that went over the punter's head into the end zone that the Eagles recovered. The Giants got their 15 points on five field goals. It was the most disgusting football game I've ever seen in my life. Rock fight. Rock fight. Rock fight. NFC East rock fight. It was disgusting. Which is why I was all the more grateful when Nick Foles was cleared to play in Oakland against the Raiders two weeks later. And he's going to set some NFL records in this game. He's going to throw for seven touchdowns, which ties the NFL mark. 400 yards, uh, he goes over throwing in that game, and he leads the Eagles to a victory. He also is the only quarterback to throw seven touchdowns in a game and have a perfect passer rating in that game, which seems remarkable. I don't know how you throw seven touchdowns and don't have a perfect passer rating. I don't understand passer rating the slightest. I'm never going to pretend like I do. When someone tells me that Lamar's is high, awesome, cool. It's very much like XG. If it supports my argument, I like it. (laughs) And if it doesn't, it's a stupid statistic that doesn't matter. I can Um, watch a quarterback and be like, he's good. Exactly. No, again, quarterback is very much, I think, an eye test position. And I'm an eye test guy myself. But we got to look at some numbers for Nick Foles on the season. First of all, the most important quarterback stat wins. He goes eight and two. He amasses the best touchdown to interception ratio in the history of the NFL at 27 to two. And his 119.2 quarterback rating was the third best in NFL history. Peyton Manning and Aaron Rodgers, the only two to ever eclipse that. 
If I recall correctly, Peyton Manning also shortly thereafter had a seven touchdown game. And that sure did feel like Dallas Braden and Roy Halladay having perfect games in the same season. Yeah, I think Peyton's, if it wasn't that season, it was like the season after. Like it was very I think close it was the season opener against the Super Bowl winning Ravens, if I'm not entirely mistaken. <laughs> oh, gee, I, 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 I'm sure you have a good recollection there. Oh, I try not to, but sorry, continue. <laughs> Yeah, based on this season, Nick Foles leads the Eagles into the playoffs. They have a home playoff game after winning the NFC East. And I was in attendance to get to see that Westlake reunion match against Drew Brees. Nick Foles, this became like a meme among the Eagles fan base, left the field with the lead. He threw a lead-taking touchdown to Zach Ertz, but Drew Brees got the ball back with too much time left. Nick Foles would never see it again as Breeze went down and kicked a game-winning field goal. Uh, former Ravens legend Kerry Williams had a big face mask on Darren Sproles on the ensuing kickoff that kind of put him in position too. But again, Nick Foles left the field with the lead. You can't ask him to do anything more. So he entered the next season as the unquestioned starter. His touchdown-interception ratio takes a bit of a hit, 13-10. and 10. But the Eagles were 6-2 and two when he got knocked out for the rest of the season with a broken collarbone. The rest of that season had Mark Sanchez. There was no butt fumbles, but there were some agonizing losses. Uh, Eagles missed the playoffs. So Nick Foles, 16-4 and four as the Eagles starter. In his only healthy season, sets all these NFL records. In his following season, takes a hit statistically. But again, most important thing is the team was winning. In a traditional general management slash front office, you would say, we have our quarterback of the future. We're going to build around Nick Foles. But the Eagles had Chip Kelly. And Chip Kelly said, let me trade away this guy who has shown all this potential. And let's get Sam Bradford in here. Nick Foles is too injured. Let's get Sam Bradford. So he trades for Sam Bradford. And this is kind of the first wake-up call. And it is very much a lemon to the face. This is a business. Shit ain't sweet. Get out. Chip Kelly is a ruthless monster. I can't believe the way he broke up that team because it wasn't just Foles. It was Shady. It was Deshaun. It was Macklin. A mystifying time to be a Philadelphia Eagles fan. In St. Louis, because it is still St. Louis at the time, Nick at least knows entering the season. He is the unquestioned starter. Week one, he has a big test. Going against the back-to-back NFC champion Seattle Seahawks. Nick Foles does what Nick Foles does. He throws a game-tying touchdown with under a minute left in regulation, and he leads the game-winning drive to kick the field goal in overtime, and he starts off 1-0 as a ran. And, of course, it all goes sideways the rest of the season. Goes 4-7 as a starter, finishes with a very nice but not good 69.0 quarterback rating for that season with the Rams. Nice. And... When the Rams trade up and draft Jared Goff with the first pick in the 2016 NFL draft, Nick Foles kind of sees what's going on here. So he requests and is granted his release. Before anything else, he's just going to contemplate retirement. He's had this four-year run where he's had the highest of highs. He was named the offensive MVP of the Pro Bowl one year, 27-2, and third-best quarterback rating of all time. And now... Gets a phone call from his first NFL coach, Andy Reid. Andy Reid has landed on his feet in Kansas City, and he needs somebody to be the backup to Alex Smith. Foles goes to Kansas City, spends a year there, 
uh, makes one spot start in which he leads the Chiefs to victory and kind of just gets his mojo back during this season. You know, obviously working closely with Andy Reid, very involved in all of the meetings in the offensive room and to a certain extent rediscovers his love for the game. They had an option to bring him back for the next season, but the Chiefs would decline it to give Nick an opportunity to decide his own future. And he decided that he wanted that future to lead him back home to where it all started. He's going to re-sign in Philadelphia to be, again, the unquestioned backup, but to be back home and to back up Carson Wentz. Through the first 13 games of the season, Nick Foles is not needed. The Eagles are rolling. They drop a game week two at Kansas City. But other than that, they're just rolling. They would drop one to the Seahawks which then set up a big showdown with the Rams in L.A. Winner is going to get the one seed in the NFC, basically. Carson Wentz on third down and goal late in the game, takes a hit, gets up a little wobbly, throws a touchdown pass. And what was very notable to all Eagles fans immediately is as compared to every other touchdown that he threw all season, Carson did not go and celebrate with the team. Carson goes to the back. He's getting taped up. Seems like it's just a precaution. Nick Foles comes in in mop-up duty. Looks a little shaky, but gets a big first down conversion to seal the game. Eagles win, and they're well on their way to getting the one seed at this point. Next day, Doug Peterson has his press conference. He confirms that Carson Wentz has torn his ACL, and the greatest Eagles team of my life is now down to its backup quarterback with just three games left in the regular season. But it's a pretty easy run in. Just need to win two or three games. We're at New York. We're home against the Raiders. We're home against Dallas. We win two of those three. We're guaranteed the one seed. First game against the Giants. Puts up good numbers. Throws four touchdowns. But something just seems a little off. Again, it's the Giants. They were really shitty that year. But we're now in a position going into the next week against the Raiders. We just need to win. We win. We get the one seed. We figure out the rest after that. And Nick Foles that high-variance quarterback that he is, starts looking like the other Nick Foles. Real shitty game against the Raiders. Disgusting football game. Gets us in the field goal range from a 6-6 game. They kick a, about a 48-yard field goal with 50 seconds left, and the Eagles score a defensive touchdown on the last play of the game. They clinch the one seed, but all the talk in town is, what are we going to do about this quarterback position? Because Nick Foles just looks fucking horrible. Gets one drive in a meaningless Week 17 game against the Cowboys, but throws a horrific interception. Like, there was not a receiver within 20 yards of where he threw this ball. And that's our last look of Nick Foles until the playoffs. It just not looking like an NFL quarterback God, you had whatsoever. I week to stew on that, too, and everything. Hey folks, it's James wearing the editor hat. We lost just a little bit of audio here, so just to sum up real quick what you missed. When the Eagles enter the divisional round facing the Atlanta Falcons, everyone's you know worrying what do we do here. Should we start the third stringer from the start of the year, now the backup Nate Sudfeld? And those fears are very much realized as the game starts and the Eagles look pretty bad all in all, which is where we're going to resume as Diaz kind of takes us through a pivotal moment near the end of the first half. Playing conservatively, Foles is missing open receivers downfield. And it's towards the end of the first half, he throws the most obvious interception I've ever seen in my life. Straight to Keanu Neal between his numbers. 
for some reason, though, instead of just catching the ball like a normal person, Keanu Neal jumped and in so jumping, hits the ball out of his hands with his own knee. It goes flying to former Ravens legend Torrey Smith, who catches the ball at midfield, gets down, Eagles call a timeout, get in field goal range, and this is probably like a 10-point swing because realistically, Keanu Neal was probably going the whole other way. Something flipped at that point. The Eagles grit out a touchdown drive late in the fourth quarter. Julio Jones slips on the final play of the game. Falcons lined out a fullback at wide receiver on the final play of the game. A lot of weird things happened. But all that matters is the Eagles won, and they donned those dog masks as they rolled into hosting the NFC Championship game. NFC Championship game, blowout, and Nick Foles is on one the whole fucking night. Our boy goes 26 for 33, 352 yards, three touchdowns, and the one that we knew the party was on was a flea flicker that he threw to your boy, Torrey Smith, towards the, the front pylon of the left end zone. Harrison Smith was coming over at safety. I forget who the corner was, but it was probably about a two-foot window that he could have possibly dropped this football into where it doesn't get intercepted. It's the most perfect throw possible. And all of a sudden, it's starting to hit us like, wait a second. We might have good Nick Foles again. He's slinging it. Good Nick might be back. St. Nick. Again, I'm, oh my, I'm, not, I'm just remembering those billboards that they had all around Philadelphia. Like, Philly believes in St. Nick. We were truly praying for a miracle for this fucking Napoleon Dynamite-looking guy to turn his shit around. And yeah, they win. They win 38-7. And now it sets up. The rematch that was 13 years in the making. Eagles Patriots, Tom Brady is still their quarterback. Tom Brady's coming off of just having had the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. It's as perfect of a David Goliath as you could ever want. Obviously, the Eagles won that game. But I don't want it to be forgotten. This was the best Super Bowl that Tom Brady played. He went 28 of 48, 505 yards, which is still a Super Bowl record, threw for three touchdowns. But most important part statistically of that day between these two, Tom Brady was targeted once and dropped the pass. And Nick Foles was targeted once and caught the pass for a touchdown. Philly special. I remember the electric excitement that I felt when I saw him touch the offensive lineman and realize that he had just made himself an eligible receiver. It was, it it remains a top three moment of my life. When when our boy, Matt Paul got married, uh, Jose and I were two of his groomsmen and we, we reenacted Philly special for our intro at the wedding. Like it is forever a part of our lore, you know, not to just dismiss what he did throwing the ball though, as well. I mean, Foles was fucking slinging that rock all game there too. 28 of 43, 373 yards, three touchdowns. He had one interception, but it was on like a very fluky, like. The ball was in Alshon's hands and got ripped out and then popped up in the air. But, I mean, now we're we're at the apex. Nick Foles is Super Bowl MVP. He's going to Disney World because, unlike Ray Lewis, he wasn't in murdering distance of where a murder was committed. Isn't that the Mulaney line, isn't it? Within murdering distance of some guys that got murdered. Credit to John Mulaney. Um, the, the other just, like, fun statistical tidbit that stood out to me. Because, like, Trey Burton had a great year as a tight end. For us, he had no receptions in that game. Trey Burton's sole statistical contribution was being the guy that threw the Philly special. Probably Going into the next, I, I don't think it was 158.3 because, again, 
passer rating makes no sense. Also, how is 158.3 the highest possible? That doesn't make any sense. I That's why the- I don't trust it. That's literally why I don't trust it. I prefer college where you have guys with a pass rating of 200 and you're like, yeah, that sounds cool. I like that one. That's like the yeah, kids like- in high school who had like a 5.0 GPA because they took fancy classes. Uh, Trey Burton had a 118.8 quarterback rating for the game, which was the highest of the four people to throw a pass in that game. Tom Brady came in second with 115.4. Nick Foles in third with 106.1. And then we have Danny Amendola at 39.6 for his incompletion. How is that not zero? It's a stupid, broken statistic. I think even if Amendola threw an interception on the one pass, it would still only be like 11.2. Like it could, in theory, be worse. It's a very silly statistic. But it is, again, important to remember that Nick Foles holds the third best single season quarterback rating of all time in that silly statistic. So it might have made some good points. Coming into the next season, there was a little bit of murmurs, a little bit of controversy of, oh, well, who's the quarterback now? But Carson Wentz was the franchise guy. It was going to go back to Carson. Foles did get to start the first two games of the season because Carson Wentz was still recovering from his ACL. We beat the Falcons on opening night. We lose in Tampa Bay. He goes one and one. And at this point, Wentz is recovered. Wentz has an up and down season. He also has kind of a recurring back injury that he's dealing with all year. And when the Eagles lose in overtime at Dallas, they're six and seven. It's a long shot to make the playoffs. So they say, you know what? Fine. Let's shut down Carson. Let's let Nick finish out the season. Fully expecting. It's just playing out the last three. Finished with a whatever draft pick. But Nick Foles is a professional lemonade maker. You're going to let Nick Foles get some lemons. He's going to make some fucking lemonade out of this. We go into LA on Sunday Night Football. And it was the most house money Eagles game I can ever remember watching in my life. Where I was like, if they win, great. If they don't, whatever. We're eliminated from the playoffs. It's fine. They win 30-23. This sets up a game at home against Houston now where, again, if you win, you're still alive. If you lose, you're done. Eagles go down 30-29 late. Nick Foles gets the fuck speared out of him by Jadavion Clowney while throwing a completion to Zach Ertz. But he's down. It looks like, oh, shit. He's probably done. I finally get my wish. Nate Sudfeld came in, threw in a completion on an out route to Alshon Jeffrey. And who comes right back in from the sideline? Our hero, Nick Foles, leads the team in the field goal range. Jake Elliott kicks the game-winning field goal as time expires. And it now sets up on the last day of the season. If we win and the Vikings lose, Eagles get in. Wouldn't you know it, big game Kirk Cousins came through for the Eagles just like they needed them to. He loses to the Chicago Bears. The Eagles shut out the Washington Redskins 24-0. And they get back into the playoffs. This sets up the road game at Chicago. On fourth down, Nick Foles throws a touchdown to the Golden Tate with under a minute left. The Eagles go up. They're up by one. Former Eagles kicker Alex Henry has a kick on the last play of the game to try to win it. It hits the upright. It hits the crossbar. It doinks twice. In fact, you might say it is a double doink. And it bounces out. The Eagles win. And all of a sudden, all of us in Philadelphia are thinking, there's no way, right? There's no way, right? We couldn't possibly have two nickels. There cannot be two nickels in our pocket right now. 
But when the Eagles go up 14-0 in the first quarter at the one-seed New Orleans Saints, we are all ravenous at the thought that we are going to actually fucking go back-to-back with our backup quarterback, Nick Foles. Saints scored the next 20 unanswered, but it's under two minutes left. Nick Foles gets the ball on the 20, and Nick Foles is driving us down the field. and He's picking up first downs, and he's avoiding sacks. And I swear to you, in that moment, I just knew we were winning the Super Bowl again. And Nick Foles hits Alshon Jeffrey at the 15, except the ball goes right through Alshon Jeffrey's hands, gets intercepted by the Saints. Just as quickly, it all comes crashing down. Drew Brees has once again won the Westlake Bowl, and the Saints win. Next week, that pass interference thing in that one NFC Championship game, that happens. Doesn't get called. The Saints lose. And also, it was good karma because the Saints were dancing around as if like they had some personal rivalry with the Eagles. I mean, Drew Brees clearly had a personal rivalry with Nick Foles. Well, he very clearly did. But it's also like the Saints had so much beef with us because they thought we were a fraudulent team and that we were lucky to have gotten to face the Vikings the previous year because, you know, the whole Minneapolis miracle thing. But like... Dude, you guys are the fucking one seed. We have Nick Foles, our backup quarterback, in. Like, why are you trying to act like this is like you're the underdog? Nobody believed in us. So I do think it's karma that they then lost in hilarious fashion to the Rams, who then lost the most boring Super Bowl of all time to the Patriots 13-3. The one thing that I always loved about that is I do have Boston friends who love to talk shit. But the one thing that I can always say to them is I know that Super Bowl wasn't fulfilling for you. It just doesn't feel right because no matter what, you know that you lost to Nick Foles. If you thought the previous offseason, the debate was worrying as to who should be the quarterback going forward. Now it's really picking up and the Eagles were ready to embrace the bait. They picked up the $20 million option on Nick Foles' contract. You're not going to pay $20 million for somebody to just be the backup. They're basically inviting this open competition. But Nick says, no, 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 that won't be necessary. I'm opting out. I'm going to be a free agent. He wants the chance to go somewhere that he can finally, you know, call his own home, be entrenched at the starter, not have these debates. Obviously, loves his time in Philadelphia, but he does finally get the bag that was owed to him. Times for four years, $88 million in Jacksonville, $52 million of that is guaranteed. And it's a good reason it's guaranteed because in week one, he goes five for eight for a touchdown before he breaks his clavicle. Never the same upon the return, gets benched for Gardner Minshew, gets traded to Chicago the next offseason. In Chicago, he's backing up Mitch Trubisky the first two weeks. Week three, the Bears are down 16. They call on Nick Foles. He leads three touchdown drives to give them a comeback victory. And on Thursday night football, he gets a chance to go up against Tom Brady again. And while Drew Brees might have Nick Foles' number, Nick Foles has Tom Brady's number. The Bears win 20-19. And it's so funny because I don't think anybody in Chicago was mad about the fact that Tom Brady didn't shake Nick Foles' hand after this game. But all of us in Philadelphia were fucking fuming because Tom Brady walked off the field like a little bitch after Super Bowl 52, didn't shake Nick Foles' hand. And wouldn't you know it, in the same instance, he does not shake Nick Foles' hand. He's had no problem shaking the hand of Aaron Rodgers. He's had no problem shaking the hand of Patrick Mahomes when he loses to him. But for some reason, he just can't handle losing to Nick Foles. Very much his specific kryptonite. 
that's kind of the last notable moment of Nick Foles' career. Goes two and five as a starter the rest of that 2020 season. Wins his only start in 2021 against the Seahawks. Did again lead a game when he touched on drive through the game when he touched on to Jimmy Graham. And in 2022, goes to join Frank Reich in Indianapolis, where he is the backup to Matt Ryan. He goes 0-2 as a starter. Currently, he is a quote-unquote free agent, but by and large, it would seem that he is retired. But to rattle through Nick Foles' career achievements, he is a Super Bowl champion and Super Bowl MVP. He is a Pro Bowl offensive MVP. He has the third highest passer rating for a single season in the history of the NFL. He is tied for the NFL record for touchdown passes in a game. He has the highest career passer rating in Eagles franchise history at 92.9. That's absurd. That's the one that does kind of stand up to the sample size. I would assume in due time, Jalen Hurts will outweigh that. Hurts had some really rough rough passing performances his rookie season. I would assume Hurts eventually gets that up north of that. But for now, still Nick Foles. He also has the NFL record for consecutive completions in a game, 25, which was in that uh, final game that they won 24-0 against the Redskins the second year that he took the Eagles to the playoffs. And last, but I think most significant, he has the NFL record for highest playoff completion percentage, 681 but I think we can round that up to 69. You almost had me until you, you tried to – you're breaking the sanctity of the nice there. I think that's that's a bit too far. That's, you, that's not even like 68.5. We're, we're really stretching there. That's, not, that's fair. That's fair. I guess if we were doing um, prices right rules, maybe you could get up to 69, but that's fine. We don't need to. There's so many points throughout Nick Foles' career. He is – Forever the bridesmaid, not a bride. Forever the backup, never has a true home as a starting quarterback where he has the full faith of the organization behind him. At so many points throughout his career, he could have taken the lemons that were given to him and said, I've been thinking when life gives you lemons, don't make lemonade. Make life, take the lemons back. Get mad. I don't want your damn lemons. What am I supposed to do with these? Demand to see life's manager. Make life rue the day it could give Nick Foles lemons. Do you know who I am? I'm the man who's going to burn your house down with the lemons. I don't think there's any reason Valve would ever want to sue us, but like just in case, Valve, please don't sue us. I'll buy a Steam Deck if you don't sue. I mean, just make Portal 3 and you're going to get about $200 They can't. They can't make a third sequel. They're not capable of doing it. At least give me an HD remaster. We'll even settle for that. Thankfully for us, though, Nick Foles is not Cave Johnson. Instead, he took those lemons... He made lemonade and he made himself a hell of a career along the way to being forever immortalized outside of Xfinity Live in Philadelphia. I can only hope that we choose to immortalize him in one more place, the Hall of Guy. One very important record we did neglect. He does have two different penis related nicknames. He does. I didn't want it to be gratuitous. It's Big Dick Nick and Footlong Foles. Like, come on, let's get blue here. It's one of those two where it's like the first time you hear it, you're just like, oh, like that's like a funny joke. Like this kind of awkward guy, you're just like saying he has like a massive cock. Everybody in the locker room that was ever interviewed about it, like Lane Johnson, I think was the one who like is actually Lane on Lane Johnson, whose like, name is basically a euphemism for a penis. There is no greater authority on the subject, I would think. I mean, we just um, talked the other day about Jordan Mailata saying that he would be Nick Foles if he could be any teammate. 
Do you think he said that because he was in all of his penis size? Yes. <laughs> Might be a part no of No hesitation whatsoever. <laughs> but speaking of authorities, Xavier, I'd like to turn to your authority, if you don't mind, because there's another guy that we need to consider today before we make any kind of rash decisions. Yeah, and before I get into it, I will say, James and I had a bit of a misunderstanding for this one. Long story short, I had thought of this topic as guys who had a good situation or multiple good situations and blew it. The inverse of when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Make lemons out of your lemonade instead. So my guy, a little different than both of yours, is Dwayne Chambers. Dwayne Chambers. And you may not recognize his name, but... There are going to be things about this story that set off a little bit of uh, alarm bells in your Fire in your heads. Wrongs. Okay. So Dwayne Chambers was born on April fifth, nineteen seventy eight, in London, England. Running was a big part of his life growing up. His older sister Christine had won the senior hundred meter finals at the English Schools Championship in nineteen eighty six and nineteen eighty seven, and had competed in the European Athletics Junior Championships. So Dwayne, taking after his sister competed in the 1994 English Schools Athletic Championships, where he won the Boys Intermediate 100 meter at a time of 10.64 seconds. The next year at the 1995 European Juniors at the under-20 level, he won both the 100 meter and the 4 by 100 meter relay. Went on to defend these titles at 1997 at the next European Juniors, and then finally transitioned to the senior ranks when he was 21, competing at the European Championships in 1998, and then later at the IAAF World Cup, which is like a lower level world champion type thing, not the main one, but kind of secondary. He continues to improve, and at the 1999 World Championships in Seville, which is his biggest competition as of yet, he sets a time of 9.97, which was good enough for third place in the 100 meter final. This made him the youngest ever World Championships 100-meter medalist at just 21 years old. With this, he's going into the 2000 Sydney Olympics as a possible medal contender. He sets a season best in the final, but finishes fourth just off the podium behind Maurice Green, Ato Bolden, and Obadele Thompson. But he's got another chance because the British team is a medal favorite for the relay. Unfortunately, they then get disqualified in the first round of qualification due to baton mishaps, the most common disqualification that you can have in a relay. It is kind of silly that the one skill you have to have in a relay other than running doesn't really like apply to the general concept of running quickly or really like any of the other things that you do in athletics events. If you're doing like a decathlon, you just have to be good at holding a baton. It was, as a person who was a member of a 4 by 2 relay team in middle school, the most anxiety-inducing thing in all of sports. You know, I played basketball, I played football, I played baseball. And those sports are very much like in the moment, like read and react. A relay is just you standing there for however long, like, fuck, I really better not fuck this up. I really better make sure I grab it. And then the whole time you're running, you're not even thinking about running. You're like, damn, I better not fuck up giving this to the other guy. You have to hold it, pass it off at the exact right moment. You can't hold it too long or else you get disqualified for holding it too long. There's a lot that goes into a a relay that feels we could streamline that. 
Like, what if you just did a bit of a high five and then you kept running? It has the same concept without the, you know, dropping things and ruining four years of training in one half second. And we can, like, figure out at this point, like, electromagnetic gloves that the racers can wear that can be, like, automatic contacts of it. We can pitch this at Sharks. I want to tell you about my way to advance the world of track. <laughs> hey, we'll hit up Mark Cuban after this, see, see if he's interested. So he leaves the game's medalists. Then he has a pretty disappointing 2001 season. So being 22, wanting to really be at his prime and, and improve, he decides that he's going to move to California to work with a new coach named Remy Korchemi. And also, I, I thought James would like that name. Uh I'm glad that wasn't wrong. And also a nutritionist who had been um, getting like pretty famous in the athletics world named Victor Conti. I know that name. That name is a drug name. And so with this specialized training under Remy Corcemi and Victor Conti, Chambers starts getting back to his best. And he wins gold medals in both the 100-meter and the 4x100-meter relay at the 2002 European Championships in Munich, setting a championship record of 9.96 seconds. He ends up getting named the 2002 European Athlete of the Year for his dominant season. At the start of 2003, he begins by boasting that he's going to lower the 100-meter record to 9.65 seconds. At the time, it's 9.78. That'd be a massive drop and also significantly better than he has ever done before. But he's confident that he can reach this goal. He's getting all of his vitamins and minerals. It reminds me, Paul Reed once said he planned to add 24 inches to his vertical leap in an offseason. It's like, do your best, bud. Both are probably equally possible, which is not saying much for Paul Reed. Uh, (laughs) But unfortunately, this season ends up being worse than 2002, and he struggles all year long. You think, oh, well, you know, he can get back at it later on, but also, unfortunately for him, a out-of-competition drugs test that he had provided in August was then re-examined in October because the USADA was investigating the Bay Area Laboratory Cooperative, otherwise known as BALCO, the workplace of Kurchemi and Conti, for performance-enhancing drugs. So after having previously, you know, passed this test, the U.S. officials were like, wait a second, we got some problems with these guys. They go back, redo it, and find what Chambers had claimed that his new coach had introduced him to, like a specialized nutritional supplement, uh, which he took by putting a few drops of liquid under his tongue, was actually a new type of synthetic anabolic steroid called tetrahydrosterone or THG, which was a brand new designer drug, he becomes the first athlete in the world to test positive for THG and gets banned from sports. So before Barry Bonds, before all the baseball players who got hit by Balco, first ever drug ban for THG, Dwayne Chambers. Banned from sports, but set a sports record. You know what? Being the first person to get designer drug banned... He's on the Balco and the THD Wikipedia pages for those things. So who's really the winner here? It it reminds me of like Happy Gilmore's record of being the first guy to try to take his skate off and stab somebody with it. (laughs) Well, then talking about guys that are responsible for rules. I mean, presumably there was no rule against THG until this. I mean, I guess, yeah, technically you're right because it hadn't existed. But 
He gets immediately two-year ban, backdated to November of 2003. Banned for life from the Olympics. So obviously missing out on 2004, which would have been his next big chance for a medal. Oh, and stripped of the medals that he had won since mid-2002 after admitting that he had taken THG from that date. To pile on top of it, he was also ordered by the International Track and Field Association to pay back all of the earnings he had made since that time, which presumably he had already spent at that point. They essentially put him on a payment plan to have to pay back all of the money that he won from prizes. I really hate that we live in a world that is more on top of punishing athletes for doing drugs than we are of like politicians trying to overthrow a government or like athletes committing domestic assault. Yeah. Even just in the world of sports, like there's so many worse things that we could be dealing with other than a guy who took a drug that again, to be fair, you didn't say he couldn't. Also, don't you dare bet on sports. This suspension brought to you by bet three, six, five. You can bet the over-under on Sandra Tonali's suspension now. I mean, the thing you got to remember here is that this is the first. They want to make an example of him. And also, the UK is, like, super strict on doping bans that we'll get into in a, in a little bit. Like, a, an athletics reporter had noted that, ironically, he was a consistently quicker athlete before he moved to San Francisco and started taking drugs. So it probably didn't help him in any way. But, you know, no one's feeling sympathy for Dwayne Chambers. So... Banned from competition, he sought alternative outlets for his time and athletic prowess. So the first thing he does, because he's still in California, is he tries out for the San Francisco 49ers. (laughs) Yeah, that's just what you do when you're in California. Run that nine route. That's all we need. It didn't work. The, The Niners did not sign him. Yeah, like, if Herb Lee Washington can't just become a pinch runner, I don't think a track athlete can just join the NFL. So what do you think he he would do next? Mixed martial arts. That's a good idea. I I like where your head is at. Yes, because what he did next was he appeared on the first season of Hell's Kitchen, the original British version, in May 2004. That's one of the best surprise reality TV show appearances I think we've had in this show. And the thing is, he just walks away and leaves without saying anything to anybody, and no one knows why he left. An ITV spokeswoman said, Dwayne came down in his normal clothes and just said, I'm off, bye. There was no big argument or anything. He just walks off the show after the first four episodes. So now, as he's waiting for this band to end... He's like, all right, football didn't work. TV didn't work. I guess I'll just try running for a bit, see what happens. So he moves to Jamaica and starts training with Usain Bolt because he just is bored and has nothing better to do. But his comeback gets delayed because he gives an interview with the BBC that revealed that he started using drugs earlier than previously said to all of the anti-doping agencies. So they made him have to disclose more They take away another medal and invalidate his European record and also say, hey, until you finish repaying all this money, you can't compete again. So he finally gets to run again in June of 2006, which is about three years after his ban happened. So he had an extra year of having to get banned because of lying and not paying the money. And he's actually very good when he comes back. Credits it to his training with Usain Bolt 
and notes that his times are way better now than they were when he was doing drugs. He's actually still banned from certain European competitions. They just won't let him be there, so he moves to a lot of indoor stuff, but does take part in the 2006 European Championships uh, as part of the relay team, and they win the gold medal. But his teammates refuse to celebrate with him because they're still pissed at him for costing them the previous medal for his drug ban. After this, he's like, all right, well, everyone still hates me. What should I do now if, you know, I can do some successful stuff in in track, but everyone hates me and they don't want me here? So he does a week-long NFL Europa training camp in Cologne. That goes okay, but no NFL Europa teams sign him. So instead... He signs with the Baffa National League side, Farnham Knights, for the British Football League. And like, gridiron football. Yes, the British Gridiron Football League, where he spends a couple games. He then goes back to a bunch of NFL Europa training camps and gets a contract with the Hamburg Sea Devils. Shortly after he signs, there is news that he is receiving, quote, new legal nutritional supplements from Victor Conti. Because for some reason, he's still working with Victor Conti, the guy who gave him THG. My t-shirt telling you how legal my nutritional supplements are is raising a lot of questions answered by my t-shirt. Hey, you you laugh now, but he started wearing t-shirts with the anti-drug slogan of saying, just say no, to fashion himself as a living example of the dangers of drugs. How does Victor Conti have any work whatsoever at this point? You know what? People like their nutritionists, whether they give them drugs or not. And Hamburg said that we're going to make sure he undergoes a vigorous drug testing regime to ensure that he's not doing... (laughs) They had to clarify to the public that we're going to make sure he's not doing drugs. And then he breaks his foot, and he's out for the season. And then NFL Europe shuts down, meaning he's out of a job along with all of his teammates. And that's a pretty bad double whammy for him. So where does he go next? To the television interview circuit again, where he sits down with BBC Inside Sport and says, there's always going to be people who take drugs because the drugs are always going to be one step ahead of the drug test. There's always going to be something else that they haven't detected. And all the runners in Britain are like, fuck you. You're making everyone question whether we're clean or not. You're a piece of shit. We hate you. Which, you know, not the thing you want if you're looking to maybe get back into running again after all of your previous things didn't work out. So instead, he tries more reality TV and goes on a show called Cirque de Celebrité. Which, as you might guess from the name, was a show about celebrities training for and then performing various circus acts. This is great. No notes for that. That should still exist. It went just about as well as his Hell's Kitchen appearance. Because this one is voting by the public. And remember, the public hates him. So he gets voted off in the first episode. Following the collapse of NFL Europe, continued sucking on TV and everyone hating him. He's like, all right, well, if everyone's going to hate me anyway, I guess I'll just go back to running. Wins the 60 meter indoor at the Birmingham Games in February of 2008. And the UK athletics chief, Niels DeVos, said... We don't want this guy competing for England at all or in any sort of international thing. We're banning him from competing in the World Indoor Championship trials. But IAAF was like, hey, you have no authority to actually do that. So they overruled the decision, let him compete, and he wins. 
and gets selected for the World Indoor Championships. And the UK Athletics Commission comes out and says in a statement, the committee was unanimous in its desire not to select Dwayne, but was forced by the selection criteria. Memo from us, the Sporting Commission. We are as upset about this as you are. We promise. They really hate him to the point where people started trying to petition to get him to retire from running so he wouldn't disgrace the UK by competing for them. No one's sponsoring him. He's just essentially paying for all this stuff out of pocket. They're trying to get him to retire. Nothing is helping him. No, no one wants him there. And he really wants to compete for the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, but he still has that full Olympic ban. So instead, he's like, all right, I guess I'll try something else again. So he joins the English rugby league team Castleford Tigers on trial, a move which made everyone hate him more because he had never played rugby before. And at a press conference, he said it was still his desire to compete the Beijing Olympics, which made everyone question it more. Like, wait a second, you just signed a trial for this rugby league team instead of training for the Olympics, which you're still currently banned from. What do you actually want to do? Dwayne trains with the Casper Tigers, makes his debut in a reserve game against the York City Knights. But Castleford eventually does say, all right, he can't play rugby. We're not going to keep this guy. And so he's back to square one. So what does Dwayne do? He sues the British Association and his Olympic ban at the High Court of Justice in the UK. This guy's a real Angel Hernandez. It's just such a a stunning lack of self-awareness. While his lawsuit's going on, he's allowed to compete in the Olympic trials, and he wins the British Olympic trials. But the high court upholds the British Olympic Association ban and stated that a right to work did not exist here. The BOA chairman, Lord Moynihan, said that those that abused drugs did not deserve to represent Great Britain at the Olympics. Quote, is a matter of regret that Dwayne Chambers, an athlete with such undoubted talent, should by his own actions put himself out of the running to shine in the Olympic stage in Beijing. I agree wholeheartedly with that statement. I wish it wasn't made by someone named Lord Moynihan. Yeah, it's the, it's the most British name ever, right? It's like and, the British way of saying, congratulations, you played yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so even with this, he doesn't want to retire. He still wants to do something. So he says, all right, I want to compete in the 2012 Olympics then. And Lord Moynihan said, over my dead body, we're not letting you do shit. However, things changed a bit for Dwayne when they appointed a new guy as the head coach of UK athletics, Charles Van Comeny, who took a different perspective and said, it's been six years since the drug ban. Chambers has served a sentence and, quote, he is a likable guy and a damn fine athlete. Under what circumstances is he a likable guy based on everything we've said up to this point? You know He's what? Maybe he every single this one guy. But, you know, remember the 2012 Olympics, London, hometown, he really wants to race. London 2012 chairman Sebastian Coe said, quote, I am clear cut in the Chambers case. I don't think there's a room for drug cheats in sport. So at this point, Chambers. He's lost in the courtroom. Everyone still hates him, but he's allowed to compete in some events, and having trained with Usain Bolt is pretty good. So he starts doing a lot of indoor running, breaks some records, wins some titles. Then he puts out 
an autobiography called Race Against Me, which, guess what? Made everybody hate him even more because he talked not only about his own drug use, but claimed that drug use was still rampant in athletics, and estimating that half the American Olympic athletes in Beijing had used illegal substances. What is nuts to me is Juiced has come out at this point, right? Like, he has seen Juiced get published and then seen how everyone feels about Jose Canseco immediately after that, right? Awareness is not a, not, not a trait that I would say that he has at this point. One of my favorite books I read in middle school, though, Juiced. It's a fun book for us. I can see why athletes hate him. Even with all of this, he continues to race, particularly in the indoor tracks that allow him to compete. And in 2012, he wins his fifth national title in the 60 meter. However, there's something in the background that's happening that would change the course of this year for Chambers. So the World Anti-Doping Association and the British Olympic Association were at odds over the BOA's Olympic ban bylaw that had the automatic ban for the Olympics for life for a drug suspension. The BOA had asked the Court of Arbitration for Sport to mediate after WADA had ruled the sanction did not comply with its code that provided for a maximum two-year ban for a first offense. And Cass agreed that the law was non-compliant to the World Anti-Doping Code, which Britain and the BOA had signed due to their connection with the International Olympic Committee, which meant that essentially this whole time, his Olympics ban had been illegal. The UK and Lord Moynihan were not happy about this, Moynihan uh, said that they were deeply disappointed by the cast ruling and vowed to keep fighting for stricter sanctions in the future. WADA had a different perspective. President John Fahey accused the BOA of making many hysterical and inaccurate public statements. And director David Howman said Cass's ruling was no surprise to anybody and urged the BOA to move on. Which, as a lawyer, yeah, if you sign something saying the maximum penalty for a first offense is two-year Olympic ban, and then you ban someone for life for the Olympics and then get annoyed when someone points it out. Like, yeah, what do you expect? But this means that Dwayne Chambers' Olympic ban is immediately overturned, just in time for those 2012 games at home, and he gets named to the squad. He says, For me, representing my country in the Olympics is a privilege that should never be taken for granted. To be given the opportunity to do so in my hometown has been a dream that at times has seemed very distant and now a reality. I'm on the edge of my seat for how he's going to fuck this up. So, in the first heat of the 100 meter, he has a season best of 10.02 seconds and wins his heat. This is his first Olympic race in 12 years, and he looks great. In the semifinal, he gets drawn in the same heat as Usain Bolt. He finishes fourth and does not make the top three cut for the final, does not get a chance to race for a medal. But, He's still got the relay. British Relays team is great. James, what happens at the relay? 2012? God, I don't remember. Illegal baton exchange. Great Britain is disqualified. Oh my goodness. (laughs) What a stupid little thing. And once again, 12 years after his first Olympic ends with a disappointing individual loss and a relay DQ, he has a disappointing individual loss and a relay DQ. This is pretty much the end of him competing at a major international event. Overall, thanks to his Olympics ban, his strip medals, the various disqualifications in events where he was favored, he had this crew with only one 
gold medal at the full world level, which was a 60 meter at the 2010 World Indoor Championships, which is like the lower rung indoor versus the outdoor. And even that, he kind of got lucky because the favorite for that got busted for smoking marijuana and banned from banned from the race. <laughs> so, hey, live by the drug ban, die by the drug ban. You know, since then, he's continued to do what he did during his whole career, and that's bounce around between sport and television. He was on an episode of the quiz show Pointless during their Celebrities Edition, which is, was aptly named Pointless Celebrity, where he did not do well. Recently, he was on the show Celebrity SAS, Who Dares Wins, which is a show that pits contestants against harsh environments all around the world in a shortened two-week-long training course designed to replicate a number of elements of the actual UK SAS Special Forces selection course. Dwayne said, regardless of how I perform, I want to get to the end. Because this is something he can't get voted off of. He gets called within just a few episodes for not being good enough to pass these tests and was the third person removed from the show. So I just want to give a full tally of all the opportunities that he had that he did not take advantage of. 2000 Olympics. Supposed to at least get one medal. Gets nothing. Fails his tryout for American football with the Niners. Walks out on his Hell's Kitchen appearance. Fails NFL Europe with the Hamburg Sea Devils to the point where the league collapses and doesn't exist within weeks after him signing and then getting injured. Gets voted off first episode of Cirque de Celebrité. Gets cut before making a single game with the British Rugby League. Finally gets back to the Olympics 12 years later. Does not make the final of his individual event. And again gets disqualified in his best chance to medal. And then gets eliminated for not being good enough on his most recent celebrity reality TV show of Celebrity SAS, Who Dares Wins. And I bet you there's going to be something else because he is doing a comedy show next week that I am very excited to find out how that goes. I mean, he's made us laugh here a lot. Savior, I'm going to go ahead and argue with your estimation of this guy not fitting the category. I think even if there was miscommunication, interpretation is entirely up to the beholder, of course, but there, there seems like, sure, maybe some of these glasses are just a bit too sour, but there is, I think, just maybe a longer juice press process going on here and i think ultimately it's worth the squeeze i mean he keeps away at that legal path back to competition for all those years and he makes it back and and in the end while it is a long delayed glass i'm sure it was still a little bit refreshing to him so i i think we've got three quality juice makers here i guess it's just a question of which drink is most satisfying the thing that i love about baseball i guess as a sport is it is part of the nature of it that guys like marco scudero are gonna have their chance as long as you're in the lineup right like it's not like in basketball you draw up the last play for steph curry in football you try to get a one-on-one for your best receiver and baseball ah fuck i guess marco scudero is coming up i hope he gets it done and time and time again he did so there's a lot to be said for that i like that i like that I guess, evaluation of situational hitting. The fact that you can hide a bad bat through many ways, but they're going to have to come to the plate at some point in a way that does not have to happen when you've got a slow fullback Mm -hmm. on the field or a center with clay feet on the hardwood. 
my thing, I think, against Chambers, he does make me a little bit happy to know that, like, the American condition of self-inflicted, quote-unquote, victimhood is an international occurrence. I'm glad to know that that exists all over. D, as you so often say, guy recognize guy. I think there is a corollary to that where the overwhelming feeling of his peers about him does make it a little tough. Like there's some sourness right there. One thing I want to clarify on the failed baton exchange, was he on the giving or receiving end of the failed exchange? That I'm not, I, I do not know. Cause it would be a real lemons out of lemonade. Like that would be the, the pinnacle of that. Nothing I saw was that he did. I was just curious. I didn't know if you had a hand. No, I, I did not find that information. Well, Xavier, what do you think about our juice merchants? This is tough because I admittedly don't think my guy fits the actual topic that you're going for because of the miscommunication. So I'm not going to push too hard for Dwayne Chambers, even if I liked regaling his story to y'all. I'm just putting Marco Scudero not clarifying his name to the world. But <laughs> I also... <laughs> You really hung up on that. Hey, you know what? I think he should have done it. I think he should have just said, hey, there's an extra S that y'all are missing here. Maybe uh, it was that he would sound more Italian, I feel like, with Marco Scudero. And, and maybe he, he thinks he's going to have a better time of it if he's just Venezuelan Marco Scudero. I don't know. I got some problems with him over this. But I think by default, he still has to be my pick because... I can't vote for Nick Foles because it was just 45 minutes of Diaz making himself very, very happy reliving the Eagles Super Bowl. And I don't think Nick Foles is a guy because he is a god of this city. And Diaz is god. You're just just jealous he has a bigger penis than you. (laughs) That is arguable. We don't know. But as not an Eagles fan who has seen the love that Nick Foles has in this city... Where he is not the starting quarterback you, and has not been for years. Are you saying that guys don't deserve love, Xavier? Are you no, saying, saying that guys can't be beloved? Guys get love by us in this show. Nick Foles does not need any extra love because it might cause the world to explode. I don't know. I'm. Here's what my head says. I, I think Nick Foles is one of the pinnacles of guy. I think he may be, as I said before, the most famous guy ever. I think he still fits in that category my head also tells me i am gonna have a lot of people probably yell at me via text or slack if i don't vote for nick Foles. that is probably the choice that if i don't make it i will get the most criticism for over the week following that episode's release well it's up to you because i'm telling you now i'm going to vote for marcos scudero and not marco <laughs> scudero because it's not his name but if you vote for Nick Foles, I will accept the committee's decision, even if I do not believe he can be in this hall because of who he is. I mean, my, my last point for Nick Foles is I do have to give him not once, but twice broken collarbone solidarity. So shout outs to a broken collarbone brother there. That be the, the thing for Marcos Scudero that does it for me is, I mean... Like, he's the subject of a documentary called Player to be Named Later. And we said that that and backup quarterback, like, those are two deeply archetypal things. But literally being the only subject from, of, of the four guys that we're really focused on in that, that has any real major league career. And that Blue Jays year, 
the Blue Jays year where it's Scott Rowland going down and David Eckstein going down and Aaron Hill going down. Like when I was thinking about Mark Scudero, initially just as a guy of the day, I was reading that and I read that season. I'm like, I can't possibly not take some time to talk about this season. I will certainly not fight a tribunal decision that seems to certify a result that I enjoy for my friend Marco Scudero. I will be the the Sonia Sotomayor dragging my feet and screaming as this tribunal does reach a decision that I don't necessarily agree with. But I do respect Marcos Scudero. I do respect a guy that is versatile, can slide in at any spot, just wants to help the team. And when his number is called and he comes up, gets some big knocks, perhaps the most guy of all the NLCS MVPs will now reside in our Hall of Guy, Mark Ose Scudero. And I'm, I'm going to be very clear on that. If, if the plaque reads Mark O, I object. But you Mark know o. I won't Scudero. fuck that up. You know I won't fuck that up. I have full faith in you, and I have full belief that Marco Scudero should be welcomed in with open arms to this Hall of Guy. Marcos Scudero needs the love. Nick Foles has gotten it before. Even Marco Scudero has gotten some love before. Marcos Scudero needs this. That's fair. God, I wonder if it does say Marco on the NLCS MVP award. We can ask him sometime as we induct him. Thankfully, it did not require any injuries to any of us for Marco Scudero to make it in this time. But we are glad that you all have joined us to welcome him in. As always, we must give thanks to those that helped us document this precious moment, that being producer Craig and all the coders behind him, as well as our musical director, Don Ham, for our lovely theme music. Uh, thank you most of all, though, to you, dear listener, for joining us. And if you would like to keep up with us until the next time that we all convene here as the Guy Bunal, you can, of course, find everything that you could possibly want to know about this show at bit.ly slash remember that guy, all one word, all lowercase. Basketball's back, baby. And we're thrilled to talk about it. Anything else for you guys? I can't believe the NBA is investigating the Sixers for why is James Harden not playing in this national TV game? Have you paid attention to the whole <laughs> fucking offseason, Adam Silver? That's why. That's fucking why. What, what's better, that or the Suns getting docked a second-round pick for tampering with Drew Eubanks? Drew Eubanks, Spurs legend. What a fucking week. What a season it will be. And during that season, I will remain your host, James. And I will be the very special guest, Xavier. I'll be Diaz. And as the sixth song on 50 Cent's debut album goes, I'm Guy all the time. <laughs> Sunday night. Diaz, switching from Oz, the first non-COVID home opener I'm going to miss in years to... No, actually, I think I can make it. It's like, I've had better reasons to not go to the home opener and have gone to the home opener. (laughs) So if you were irresponsible then, why start being responsible now? Jesus Christ, get in prices like 23 bucks Sunday night. If I'm back in time, I'm going. (laughs) Yeah, Diaz not. is has officially been upgraded from doubtful to questionable. Well, hold it's there's a 1 p.m. volleyball game. It's a three-hour drive back. I would be getting back to Philly like right around opening tip. You'd have to like pay for parking by Wells Fargo.
Right. And then not drink alcohol, which is very helpful when watching the Sixers. <laughs> so that that's also a negative. We'll see. You know what, folks? Folks will find out by Monday. 